0: Welcome to the Proclaim and Defend podcast, a ministry of the Foundations Baptist Fellowship International. We seek to encourage and inform pastors on modern-day topics from a biblical perspective. Our mission is to bring together like-minded Baptists to collaborate in glorifying God through fulfilling the Great Commission. Greetings, everyone. It's Don Johnson with the Proclaim and Defend podcast. Today, we are once again offering one of our recordings from our summer sessions at uh, Faith Baptist Bible College in Ankeny, Iowa. Uh, this one comes from one of our workshop sessions. Now we, we were in a bit of a quandary. We debated about some of these sessions because there was something went, <laughs> that went wrong with the recording, uh, partway through. There's two spots where there's a noticeable gap in the recording. For some reason the mic Seemed to shut off and turn back on again. We don't know what happened. So <clears throat> there was a long space, several seconds, very noticeable, of dead air, so which is a very bad form when you're doing a recording. And we debated whether we should even put these out. Uh, so uh, what we decided to do was cut out the dead air and just splice it together. And you will notice the speaker will go on. And he'll, he'll stop abruptly, and then a couple seconds, and then he'll pick up again. So we do apologize for that, but we think the material is well worth your attention. So we decided that we would go ahead and send it out uh, in the form that it is. We can't obviously recover uh, things that weren't recorded. But the bulk of it, I mean, we're talking about a 45, 50-minute presentation. Uh, the bulk of it is there. And you will get the benefit of hearing it. And if you get an opportunity to hear these speakers in another location, we would really encourage you to do so. So that's, that's just the, the disclaimer before we enter into this, uh, into this recording today. So I wanted to mention that because you'll say, what? Why are they putting this out? Or maybe, maybe you won't. Maybe you'll, you'll like it so well. You'll, you won't even bother you. Uh, the other thing, uh, we want to remind you is that if you will subscribe, uh, to our podcast uh, the paying subscriptions when we do an interview with a frontline author you will be able to read their article immediately on our sub uh, uh site and also if you will subscribe annually which we would prefer you do you'll get a bit of a discount on the cost and you will uh, also get the print magazine sent to you in the mail so we hope that you find today's presentation helpful and uh, we're planning to bring others uh, in the coming weeks. And uh, we, uh, as I say, uh, uh, just bear with us on these uh, glitches and uh, that we do pray that the Lord will, will bless you through the teaching that is available through this means, regardless of these technical problems.
1: Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for coming this afternoon. Let's pray and then we will begin what is a missionary story which I hope will be an encouragement to you. Uh, Patient evangelism is my theme today. In fact, before I pray, let me give you a theme verse, and that is the prayer request that every minister of the gospel, I think would put as his highest priority. Paul writes to the Thessalonians and says, Finally, brethren, pray for us, prayer request, that the word of the Lord may have free course. What does that verb mean? He's to run. May the word of the Lord run. That is, we want to see progress. And that the word of the Lord may be glorified. That it's not about just making progress. It's about doing it God's way so that he gets the glory and not his instruments. Even as it has with you. That is, you Thessalonians know all about this. He talked about that back in chapter 1 of First Thessalonians, right? That through them, the word of God is sounded out all the way uh, to uh, to Illyricum, to modern Albania. And that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. There are obstacles for all men have not faith, Paul says, almost tongue in cheek, but the Lord is faithful. And therefore, the fact that all men have not faith is not an obstacle, it's an opportunity. All right, so we're going to discuss the word of the Lord running, and yet sometimes it just doesn't look like it's running. Sometimes it looks like it's running in place. So the Lone Star Mission, a story of patient evangelism. Well, let's pray, we'll begin. Thank you so much, Lord, for this wonderful privilege for Jamie and me. Lord, this conference has already been a blessing, a challenge, an encouragement, and a spur to more Christ-like endeavor. I pray that you would help all of us to uh, benefit from this time of, of instruction, of learning and fellowship, of of networking in the right sense, and of uh, of ministry of encouragement. Thank you, Lord, that a conference like this reminds us that we're not going this alone but that we have many who are who are treading the path before us and helping us. And thank you for examples from church history that teach us the same thing. Thank you, Lord, for this work that you did in India in the 19th century. And I pray that reviewing this story for just a few minutes this afternoon would be a blessing to these folk who have taken time out to uh, join. I thank you now for your presence with us. Bless, I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to tell the story in phases. And phase one is frustration, 1836 <laughs> to 1848. The context is that Baptists finally organized nationally in 1814. At that time, there were about 48 regional associations of Baptists. And it's probably a second-order miracle that when Luther Rice came back from India and started traveling around saying, hey, we've got these missionaries, and you can support them, Adam Ironman and Judson, Uh, Baptists caught on, and while the Judsons by this time were in Burma, laboring in this Buddhist culture, a a convention was formed, and that convention thrived. That is, by the 1830s, the Judsons and other missionaries, uh, many other great missionaries were infiltrating Burmese culture into the mountains, the Karen people, many other peoples, and they're starting to ask, where else can we send missionaries? And they sent missionaries to China, they sent missionaries to the West Indies, they sent missionaries to the South Pacific. And then they said, maybe we should send missionaries to India. But Now, the British Baptists were already established in India. They were up in Bengal, around Calcutta, William Carey, the Sarampur mission. And they were in the far south, way down in the tip of of India. But American Baptists were not established there at all, and there was a big chunk of India where there were no Baptist missionaries and almost no missionaries of any evangelical persuasion. And they decided to strike out into southeastern India, 1836. The missionary and his wife who stepped forward were Samuel Day, and Samuel Day was in his 20s. He was a recent graduate from seminary, and he said, I will go to this barren spot among Hindu people and evangelize. So they sailed to Calcutta, and I'm going to move fairly quickly because I've got a lot of story to tell you, but as I tell my students all the time, interruptions for questions are welcome. So so I probably won't stop every five minutes to say any questions, but I will notice if you raise your hand, perhaps. So they sailed to Calcutta, (laughs) and there's Calcutta, and 16 miles up the Huli River is Sarampur, And a a thriving British ministry is going on there and they're winning souls for Christ. And so that's a good place to start. They sailed on September, September 22nd, 1835. Four and a half months later, they landed February 5th. They connected to British Baptists and began training and they spent about a year acclimating to India. And then they went where they really wanted to go. They went to Madras. Madras is in southern India. Not all the way to the bottom, but way down there. And again, there was a strong British military and political presence in Madras. But there was very little missionary work going on there. And so they settled into Madras for three years. Southeast Asia, if you look at this map, you see a large state just above Madras called Andhra Pradesh. Andhra Pradesh is made up primarily of an Indian subgroup called the Telugus. In fact, they make up the majority of the population of that whole part of India. And as far as Samuel Day and the Americans knew, the American Baptists, there was no effective ministry to the Telugus, And that's who they wanted to reach. But it's going to be hard because Indian culture is Hindu. Hinduism is pantheistic, polytheistic. So their sacred scriptures say they have 330 million gods. But you can take that with a grain of salt. Everything can be a god. So it's really, it blurs the distinction between polytheism and pantheism. And therein lies the challenge for missionaries to this day. You can say to a Hindu, do you believe Jesus is God? And they'll say, sure. Who isn't? And so it's easy to get them to say, I'll worship Jesus. But it's hard to get them to say, but I won't worship all their other gods superstitions abounded the caste system which is fundamentally anti-christian was embedded in their culture and so you've got to battle that if you're going to get that caste and that caste to get baptized and sit in the same pew it's going to be a work of grace god's going to have to do that as he does all the heavy lifting and so evangelism is very challenging But the days are committed and they are burdened for the Telugu's. So by August 4th, 1838, Samuel Day has a little church formed in Madras. It's got 15 members. Several of them are British soldiers. Several of them Indians. He's preaching in Telugu already. Within two years, he's preaching in Telugu. This is not a lazy man. He is working at this. He's pouring his heart into it, and no Telugu's are getting saved. And in 1840, after three years of struggling here, he says, you know what? Madras is too British. It's a big city. There's too much British presence. It's not even technically in Telugu land. I've got to go up into Telugu land. And so he leaves that church, and he travels 107 miles north along the coast to Nellore, the largest city in population in Telugu land. And a month later, he moves there in February. A month later, reinforcements arrive. Praise God. The Van Heusens show up. You say, are you telling us much about these missionaries? I'm telling you what I know about these missionaries. Their names were the Van Heusens. We don't know much about them. But they show up and they say, we will join you. And so they purchase property in the Lord and they build a mission house. They hire Indian builders to build the mission house. And then they try to evangelize their neighborhood and no one will come to their mission house. No one will come to their mission house. It's five or six months before they find out that these mission, that these Indian builders maliciously have spread a totally false rumor that these missionaries have actually sacrificed children and buried them in the foundation of the mission house because their gods require that. And then, so they have to spend their first year on the field just convincing people that they're not monsters. But they labor on. And by late 1841, they baptized their first Telugu. That was a happy day. So they have won a Telugu to Christ, and they have convinced that Telugu to say, I have turned from idols to serve the living and true God. Uh, they were very demanding before they would put someone in the baptismal pool. And this guy was ready. And three years later, by October 1844, they've won five or six Telugu's. They've baptized them, and they've organized, they've officially organized a Baptist church in the Lord. Praise God. And then Van Heusen's health completely rests. I mean, it's southern India. There are just germs everywhere that Westerners can't cope with. Uh, If you study the history of missions, whether it's Southeast Asia or Central Africa or here in southern India, They can't fight off the malaria. They can't fight off the typhus. They can't fight off the typhoid fever. They're constantly getting dysentery. And slowly but surely, it just destroys their health. And in the case of the Van Heusens, after five years, they have to go home. They're never able to return. A few months later, the days go home. After 10 years of battling the Indian climate, they can't stay anymore. And so they take the, the most spiritual Indian in their church, and they say, we'll be back as soon as we can. Hold it together, brother. We know you can do it. You've been saved nearly two years. And the church falls apart. That is, the native leadership is not ready. Some of them go back into their heathen ways almost immediately without oversight. And by 1848, there is no church there. And they've poured 12 years of their lives into this. And the American Baptist Missionary Union, and to give a little background, the Triennial Convention has these tensions between North and South for 30 years. And in 1845, because of the slavery issue, the Southern churches virtually en masse pull out and establish the Southern Baptist Convention. Three years later, they make every three years since Triennial, they vote to change their name to American Baptist Missionary Union in the North. And the ABMU now is going to be the Northern Missionary Sending Agency for the rest of the century. Until they merge into the Northern Baptist Convention. Where did Judson land on this? Judson on the. On what? the uh, American Baptist or Southern Baptist. Judson actually was in, was personally present at the 1848 meeting where they voted in the ABMU. He was home to, uh, he had sailed home to take his Sarah, his wife Sarah, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I'm getting that wrong. He was personally present in 1845 when the Southern Baptists voted to secede. And Judson stood with the Northerners. He was back in Burma by 48. That was my question, right? But, um, but Judson was very much on the North. In fact, of all the missionaries, all of them, the Trinial Convention sent out between 1814 and 1845, there was one missionary who went South. All the others associated with the North. And that one missionary was uh, John Shuck in China. So the Southern Baptist started with one missionary. 1848, the ABMU meets. said you know should we really continue this mission i mean where do you put your investment do you put your investment where nothing's happening and we've we've it's been 12 years a very small mission station was established there have been virtually no converts the few that we thought we had have dispersed two missionary families of wrecked health and one of the men who was attending that meeting was lyman jewett and lyman wonder what Mrs. Jewett thought, you know, when they got home. I don't know exactly how that played out, but the Jewett said, we'll go. And they took their kids, and they sailed to southeast India. And, and when somebody in the meeting volunteers to go, you can't cancel the mission, right? Uh, it, was, it was a tough meeting. They were that close to canceling the mission. They said, okay, uh, the Jewetts will go phase two, 1848 to 1853. The days were ready to go back. And the days and Jewits sailed back October 1848. Their first job is, find our old converts. They reformed the church. The Jews had some experience in education. They opened a school, a school to teach English language, Western culture, that had an appeal to a number of uh, middle to upper caste Hindus. And they start getting people in. Jewett was a sharp cookie. He's preaching in Telugu in nine months. That is, he dives into the language. No one's getting saved. For five years, they evangelize. They see some fruit. A young man gets saved, and he really gets saved. And he becomes an evangelist and becomes sort of an understudy, but very little fruit. And in 1853, the dreaded visit from the mission board happened. That is, the ABMU sends out some guys to check them out. And there's a small congregation there, but it's been 17 years. I mean, some places we're sending missionaries, they're having revival annually. What's up with you guys? And the Jews, the days and Jews are saying, we're, we're, we're preaching the gospel. We're praying. We're training. We're teaching. Um, the Lord gives the increase. And that year, the day's health finally failed. And they had to go home after being on the field for almost 20 years and really never seeing any appreciable fruit. And they were never able to return. So the ABMU, when the, when the visitors got home, they said, should we be continuing this? And they had a second discussion to disband the mission in Southeast Asia. And let's not criticize them. Many of you have experience with mission boards and these organizations and, and there's limited resources and limited personnel. Do you keep pouring investment into something that doesn't seem to be paying off? In fact, they had a big map and they took little stars. This is 19th century and they stuck them everywhere they had a mission on the world. And in some places there was this cluster of mission of stars. And then there's this big subcontinent of India and there's this one star. And Lansing Burroughs, who was at the meeting, said, boy, that looks like a lone star there. And they called it the Lone Star Mission. <laughs> there's just not a lot shaken. And so they spent several hours discussing whether they should continue this mission. One of the men who was there was S.F. Smith. If that name seems familiar to you, he's the guy who wrote My Country of Thee," oddly Baptist Minister. And at the end of the meeting, he went back to his hotel room, and he pulled out a piece of paper, and he wrote a poem called The Lone Star. Here are three stanzas that he presented to the committee the next day. Shine on, Lone Star. thy radiance bright shall spread o'er all the eastern sky. That's faith. Mourn, breaks apace from gloom and night. Shine on and bless the pilgrim's eye. Shine on, Lone Star, in grief and tears and sad reverses oft baptized. One of the problems with this presentation is that I've just shared with you 17 years. But we've all lived, all but one, have lived 17 years. (laughs) And we know that in a missionary story, it seems like nothing. When you're on the ground trying to win people for 17 years, it feels like 47 years. In grief and tears and sad reverses off baptized, shine on amid thy sister's fears. Lone stars in heaven are not despised. There's lots of double meaning there, right? I mean, that one star that can show us the way is pretty helpful. And in fact, in heaven, uh, God's not despising this work. Shine on, lone star. The day draws near when none shall shine more fair than thou. Thou, born and nursed in doubt and fear, will glitter on Emmanuel's brow. And again, I've always kind of imagined this committee who spent three hours saying, should we continue it now? Pros, cons, let's make a list. And then he shows up the next morning with his poem. Now what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> they voted to continue the mission. Go figure. All right? So they are going to keep on keeping on. Phase three. Expanded vision. Well, the Jewets, meanwhile, are faithfully serving. boarding school. The days have left. The work is big for one missionary couple. But Jewett is still thinking about what God could do. And he leaves Nalore, which, again, is relatively safe. And he travels another about 70 miles up the coast where there's almost no British presence, where you don't see soldiers, where nobody's keeping the peace, to the little town of Ongol. And on New Year's Day, 1854, he and his wife and several children and... That native preacher I mentioned, who's been faithfully serving alongside them, they gather on a little knoll and look out over Own knoll, And Jewett says, I believe this is where God's going to do it. I believe this is where God's going to do it. I'm not sure when, and I don't know if I'm going to be a part of it, but I believe this is the place. Now, he wasn't a prophet, a son of a prophet, and I don't want to turn this into mysticism, but the Lord laid on his heart that. You know, if we're going to win Telugu's, we're going to have to go where there are just Telugu's. And Ongo will be a beginning. A year later, they were joined by Mr. and Mrs. F.A. Douglas. Praise God for couples who are willing to go out and serve in Lone Stars, who are willing to go out and do works which are not glamorous and don't show lots of fruit, don't show lots of results. And the Douglases are there for about a year and a half, and they're carrying on seeing a conversion here, conversion there, building a little church, teaching them biblical theology, and the sepoy mutiny breaks out. And Westerners are being killed by the thousands. I mean, it is a bloody, and by the way, the Indians had really good reasons to revolt. and, And the British are putting it down brutally, and they have to flee. They head back to Nalor. I'm sorry, that's not what that means. They have to flee down to Madras to escape the dangers in Nalor. The sepoy mutiny is put down. Ruthlessly. And they go back to Nalur towards the end of 1858. Hmm. What hope have we now of winning Hindus to Christ? The British army has been killing these people. And 13 people come to Christ in the closing months of 1858. God used war to humble people. And suddenly they're more open to the gospel. Glory. 13 converts was, I mean, the days saw less than one convert a year for 20 years. And now 13 people come to Christ. I think Jewett thought he'd died and gone to heaven. And so about two years later, he travels back to Ongol, and he purchases property there and says, when the time's right, we're going to build a mission station here in Ongol. That year in 1860, another Indian get saved, who becomes one of their most faithful evangelists. So I don't mean to diminish that part of the story. These missionaries are working with native evangelists. But by 1862, the Jewett's health is broken. And they've got to go home. And they say goodbye to the Douglases to do the work on their own. And they sail from Nalore back to America. And it's providential timing. Because in 1862, the ABU MU is meeting to decide whether to continue the mission. Because now it's been 26 years. And Jewett shows up at the meeting and says, you can't cancel our mission. We just need more help. We need more volunteers. We need more resources. And uh, they say, well, you're pretty sick. And he was. It's going to take three years. I'm sorry. Can you write a poem? can you write we need another where's sf smith when you need it right jew is not going to be well enough to go back to full-time ministry for three years i mean he's he's a sick man his his wife's health is broken and then while they're deliberate not while they're deliberating they continue the mission but then in 1865 they find out that the douglases are going to have to come home that's like how is this thing ever going to survive and that brings us to phase four Well, there's a clock. Not that I'll pay attention to it. Phase four, 1865. The Jewits say, we are ready to return. And they were determined to return. In fact, one of the missing things in my story is I don't know when the Jewits finally finished their ministry in India. All the other missionary families, they come, they go, they come, they go. The Jewets go back, and I don't know when they ever stop. So you'll be looking for that later. So I'm warning you, I don't know. Uh, I couldn't find it in my sources. But another family volunteers to go back with them. And that man is John Everett Clough. John Everett Clough was born in 1836, which means he's 29 years old. You say, why tell us that? Because that's actually a good bit older than what these missionaries have been. Almost every family has been fresh from seminary, go to the field. Clough has been traveling around America, especially the Western United States, as a traveling evangelist. And he is a magnificent preacher. In fact, they had a nickname for him that that in our modern parlance would sort of be like Deal Moody Light. You know, he kind of reminded now. Now, this is a little before in the eighteen fifties. Moody is not famous yet, but he's got this big Sunday school that everybody knows about. And by the eighteen sixties, Moody's beginning to have a broader reputation. And Clough can preach. He's a powerful minister, and in fact, when he and his wife tell family and friends, we're going to India, the response is, why would you do that? Look at the people who are getting saved here in America. Look at the crowds you're drawing. You're a powerful preacher. Why would you squander all that on (coughs) some And uh, the Cliffs didn't view it that way at all. First, they had a theology in place that says, any results we're getting here in America is God, not us which means when we get to the mission field, it'll be God too, right? <laughs> that, is, that theology will keep you from getting the big head over whatever's happening. And when they arrive, late 65, things are about to break that are almost completely unrelated to them. Things are breaking in Ongol. That is, Clough and Jewett travel up to Ongol to just observe And they're still planning, and they're getting closer to moving their mission there. It's a big step. And they meet a man by the name of Pariah. Now, this is not Pariah outcast, but his name was Pariah. And he was from a little village uh, out in the rice paddies to the west called Tula a pronunciation uh, uncertain. (laughs) (laughs) And he's saved. (laughs) And they can't believe it. I mean, they grill him are you really? And he explains the gospel to him. They make him explain it again. And they say, well, how did you get saved? He said, well, I was in my village and these missionaries showed up. I, he said, I think they were from England. And they were traveling from way down south up to Calcutta. And as they stopped through my village, they shared the gospel with me and I got saved. And he was a businessman who would come into Ongold to do work. And he meets them and says, I'm a believer and I'm a Baptist. And they were like, where'd you come from? <laughs> And he was passionate. That is, he got saved and started telling his family and his friends and everybody in Tula Kandipo. And Clef said, this is it. This is it. This is the sign that Ongol is the place. Because from Ongol, we can get to these places. And so they returned in the Lord. And they got their three most veteran Indian evangelists. And they sent them to Tula Kandipo to work with Pariah. And they get word back from Tula that they've seen 200 conversions. 200 conversions. And they think, what are they doing? You don't see 200 Hindus. get uh, up. These people are, this is syncretism. They're adding Jesus to their god list. There's no way this is legitimate. And so they move to Ongo. They said, we're going to be on the site. 1866, Clough builds a chapel, Jewett establishes a school, and then he says, we are going in person to, to, to Le Condepot and see what's going on out here, and so they do, and on their way there, they're outside the village, and 30 or 40 people meet them, now this is not 200, but 30 or 40 people meet them, and they've got, they, they're all carrying bags, and Clough's like, nice to meet you. And Pariah says, these are some of the new believers. And he starts introducing. And Clough says, well, why do you have, what, what are the bags for? And they said, well, we, brought, we brought clothes for the baptism. And Clough said, what baptism? I said, well, we want to get baptized. And Clough said, slow down, slow down. And he spends the next five days teaching basic theology to these people. Amen. And working them through what the gospel is and makes them deny the Hindu gods. And when he was done, he baptized 28 of them. Couldn't believe it. Said, the Lord is working. And then he went back to Ungo. And the Lord was working there too, he thought. Because the the missionary strategy for almost all Westerners going into India was what I might call a top-down strategy. The idea is that when you've got a caste system, People at the top of the caste have enormous influence over people at the bottom of the caste. People at the bottom of the caste have no influence over people at the top of the caste. So win a few Brahmins, win a, win a, win a few is the warrior class, and pretty soon people will be flocking to church and, and you'll be able to win them. Well, in Ongol, they saw a couple of high caste people, several high caste families who were willing to come to the church, and a couple of them said... We believe your message. And they were rejoicing. This is the breakthrough they've been waiting for. Yeah, we got these rice paddy workers out there, but this is the breakthrough we've been looking for. And they uh, scheduled a baptism in their brand new baptistry. And then they told the upper caste people, by the way, we've our, our, our brother pariah from Tula Kondipode, He's bringing in some of the new converts, and we're going to baptize you all at the same time. And the upper caste people said, well, wait, well, well, wait, what, why? Well, we're going to have a baptism. You want us to go down in the same baptismal waters with those people? I mean, those are low caste people. That, you, you can have a church for them and a church for us, but we're not going to church with those people. You've got to be kidding. And that was devastated. I mean, it may seem real obvious to us what to do, but their whole strategy was built on the fact that it wouldn't work this way. And so uh, he wrestled with it, January 1867. The story, and missionary stories always have some of these things that just are a little bit too perfect, right? So, so uh, But here's here's the story that you read. That clefts in one re- room saying, Lord, give me a verse. And his wife's in another room saying, Lord, give me a verse. And they both go... Found it, found it. Who's telling first? And guess what passage they have both found? Consider your calling, brethren. Not many mighty, not many nobler called. God chooses the weak things of this world to confound the mighty. And they went to those high caste people and said, if you have truly trusted in Jesus Christ, well, then you can't look down on anyone. You can't look down on anyone. Now you will spend your whole life overcoming your pride, but it starts today. And if you will not be baptized with those people, then you will not be baptized.
2: And the high caste people walked out in a huff. So had they picked up the three native workers, had they picked up that strategy, it was more culturally appropriate, they just preached to everybody, or what did they pick up?
1: The native workers I think were less tuned into such a strategy. I don't I don't know what the on-ground discussions with them looked like. Uh, but this was a typical Western strategy. And, and, and even when I say it's a strategy, I'm not saying they wouldn't share the gospel with anyone. They just anticipated more success top down. They didn't anticipate being able to spark revival at the grassroots level. They just didn't think that would work. Uh, literacy issues and cultural issues. So they thought top down was just going to be more effective. It's not like they were only witnessing to certain classes of people. That makes sense. Thank you, Brother Dixon. Good question. Here's what Klopp said about it When the caste people come, as come they must, it will only be when their caste has been thoroughly broken and abandoned. This will be the strongest possible evidence of the genuineness of their conversion.
2: Yeah.
1: And so they abandoned that whole strategy. That's not what we're going for. If we can win a Brahmin to Christ, fine. But you know how we'll know he's been won to Christ? He won't be a Brahmin anymore. Now, I learned this story first from an 1898 history of Baptist missions by uh, a man named Hervey. I recommend Hervey's book. It's a thousand pages, but it's worth reading. And then I found it in other places. But the last place I found it was in a book by Donald McGavron, the Fuller Seminary Seeker Sensitive Strategist. And McGavran McGrav- tells this story and says, Clough was a genius because as long as he was trying to do ministry for one cast, it was failing. But once he shifted his methods to reach another cast, well, then the doors flew open and therefore you should do the same thing. You should find out what your community is like and do things that fit your community. And, and that strategy of the mid eighties was, a major contributing factor to the expansion of the secret-sensitive movement. And what I would argue today is that that's a horrible misreading of what's going on here. Clough would run shrieking from the room if he read what McGavern was saying. Because this was not secret sensitivity in that modern sense. A theology of God and salvation and man and sin. They weren't adjusting to fit the felt needs of their audience. They were giving up Western thinking, which itself was antithetical to the gospel, that they had brought to the mission field and not realized. They needed to learn. Well, in 1867, the church starts growing. It goes from eight members to 75 that year. Some of these members are scattered about, but they're all members of Ongul. 1869, they baptized 42 converts in the Ongol baptistry in August. And Clough says, you know what? I'm throwing safety to the wind, and I am traveling deep into Taigaloo land. And he goes to the little town of Kumbu, And 300 people respond and get saved. And all of them are low-caste laborers. And he believes revival is beginning. And these people start sharing the gospel with their friends and neighbors. And to the west of Ongol, in these little villages that are extremely poor, very low on cultural standards, very little uh, ability to read, the church explodes. And they come into Ongol and get baptized, become members of the church. And then Ongol tries to work to have disciplers out among all these satellites. And by the end of 1869, they have 648 members in their church. You say, well, that's an amazing story. Uh, Dr. Saxon, well, we're, we're actually just kind of beginning. Because a year later, God sends another family, the McLaurin's, and the growth just explodes. That is, people are getting saved faster than they know what to do with them. Within two years, their church numbers 1,658 members there uh, in Ongole and the surrounding villages. And to quote Spurgeon, it was a harvest too rich for the barn. I mean, what are we going to do with all these people? It's happened too fast. We've gone from eight to sixteen hundred in three years. And we don't, we don't have infrastructure for this, we might say. And so they're training natives as rapidly as they can. And, and, and they're they're and then Clough does, to me, one of the most amazing things in this story. Because at this point in the story, being the carnal person I am, I'm inclined to say that Clough dude must have been super gifted. Right? I mean, the days, they must have been a little bit pedestrian and, you know, and the Jewett's being a hard worker, but he probably couldn't preach that well. But now a gifted guy shows up and boom! Clough did not view it that way. (laughs) He announces to the McLarens that he's going back to America. Why? Because they need help and the letters are not getting it done. And so he says to Brother McLaren, carry on. I'll be back as soon as I can, but we need help. And he takes off for America. And the growth stopped because Clough wasn't there anymore. No, that's not. The, because it's not the Maclaurans and Cloughs who are winning people to Christ. It's the converts who are winning people to Christ. It's a ripple effect. Pretty fast ripple. In 72, they had 477 more baptisms. In 73, they had 708 more baptisms. And it wasn't Clough. He wasn't even there. So what does he do in America? Well, he works real hard. He goes to the ABMU and says, I need four new missionary families and $50,000. And they said, go for it. Uh, So he did. He got on trains and traveled over 29,000 miles in two years. He preached 162 times. I appreciated the the talk about measurable ministry in the last session. Uh, We know from Acts it's not wrong to count. It's wrong to trust in numbers, right? Right. But he's, he's keeping a log here. And at the end of those two years, four new families have volunteered to go be a part of this. And they could use many more. And he's raised $50,000 to build a seminary for young Indian converts. And that brings us to phase five. And I'm supposed to be done at three, right? Is that the? Okay. We're not that far. this. He returns in 1875. The ministry is exploding, expanding, and then something really tragic happens. In South India, they get a major famine every 12 years. That is, they depend on two monsoon seasons a year for their growth. And when one monsoon fails, then you'll have famine in part of India. If both monsoons fail, you have major famine. It's expected that everyone living in the subcontinent in the 19th century would experience major famine once every 50 years. And everyone would be affected once every 50 years. Well, this famine was one of the worst ever recorded. It's called the Great Famine because two consecutive years, both monsoons failed. And just nothing was growing. And millions of people were affected. 58 million is the number that we're told. So a large chunk of India of people who don't have work, who don't have food, who are starving. The death toll is going to be around 3 million people despite all the efforts to prevent it. England jumps into it. The the crown raises a whole lot of money to send down there. The parliament votes a lot of money. The United States sends a whole lot of money. Uh, Private relief efforts, they raised over 18 million pounds of money to buy food and provide jobs and do things for South India, And still people are dying. Uh, whole villages are dying. And Christians, churches jumped into it. So what can we do? And Clough at this point, you know, we, we've heard the word creative. right? I feel like one of the least creative people in, on, on planet Earth. But creativity is one of the key things to getting things done, right? And Clough decides to be creative. The British government, in order to employ as many Indians as possible, so they give them a little bit of wage or a little bit of rice and just keep them living, decides to build a large intercoastal waterway, the Buckingham Canal. And Clough goes to the authorities and says, you know, I've had a bit of a revival going on here. Got got a fair number of Indian believers, and I think that we could build a section of this canal for you. They said, do you know how to build a canal? He said, Brains can be bought. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll get it done. And he this, he contracts with them to build three and a half miles of canal. And they start hiring Indians and giving them jobs. And every morning they gather their work crews together, and he puts one of his native preachers over every work crew. And every morning they share the gospel. And every lunch they break, and he shares. They share the gospel. And every evening they share the gospel. And These Indians are hearing the gospel constantly as they're building this canal. But Clough was concerned, and I think justly concerned, that you take starving people, you give them a job, you give them food, you give them love, and then say, do you want to trust Jesus? They'll say yes, whether they trust Jesus or not. And so he went to his own church and said, until the famine ends, there will be no baptism now, you win people to Christ, but they're not going to go through the full examination process and be baptized until we have evidence that they want to be Christians when, when their bellies are full. We're, we're not interested in fake Christians. professions. And from April 1877 to June 1878, for about 15 months, they built, they evangelized, and they waited. They waited. No baptisms. I mean, this is a church that had been baptizing people by the hundreds for the last several years. No baptisms. And I don't know what you think about this, but I find it glorious. Uh, I believe this is faith in God. And they were not interested in just reporting numbers. And then the famine ended. And Clough contacted the native preachers out in the villages and said, I know that you've been evangelizing as we've worked on the canal. And I know you've had a number of people that profess faith in Christ. Well, it's time. We can do baptisms now. But we got a smallpox breakout in Ongo. So we can't come here. We're going to have to do the baptisms out near the canal. So identify the most likely people, the ones that you're almost certain know Christ is their Savior, and he gave them a place to meet near the Baptist. And, and let's come there. We'll start slow. We'll baptize a few people. Slowly but surely, we'll examine their faith. We will do this in an orderly fashion. And they gathered there. June 16th, 1878. I've already discussed these things without clicking my thumb. Sometimes fails to keep up. And the native preachers as they chose the most likely people showed up with a couple of thousand people. There's a whole lot of Indians there. And from about June 10th to June 15th, they had interview after interview after interview. And these people know the gospel. They've been evangelized for 15 months. And some of them have just been itching to get baptized. And so they hold a baptismal service to be remembered. They had six preachers who went down two at a time into the river And for eight hours, they baptized people. That day, they baptized 2,222 people. Wow. It was a day to be remembered. Clough described the three days later in his journal. We held a special service. And after much prayer and consideration, we decided to baptize any and all who had given to the preachers evidence over some months that they were Christians. And who had an intelligent understanding of the main facts of the Christian religion. The evidence of the preachers with that of the leading members of the church in their localities who had been baptized years ago or other reliable information concerning their change of heart was decided to be sufficient. The result was the baptism of 3,536 people in three days. It was a revival, and it didn't stop. By the end of 1878, they had baptized 9,606 people so that the membership of the young Gold church was 12,000 people. And when word got back to the ABMU, they said, what are those people doing out there? Are they paying off people's mortgages? Are they giving everybody free elephant rides? Are they handing out candy? What are they doing? This can't be real. And so they sent a commission to, uh, to check it out. And right about the time the commissioners arrived, three more people came in from the field and said, we're here to be baptized. And, and, and a guy by the name of Bainbridge, who was on the commission, said, ha, you guys, give them to me. Before you talk to them or get them ready or anything else, I want to talk to them. And so he does. And he's rude to them. He says, do you owe anybody anybody? I mean, can you imagine asking somebody who comes to you for baptism and say, are you in debt? <laughs> what do you expect to get from the missionaries for doing this? Will you serve Jesus the way you've served the devil all these years? And uh, they just politely answered his questions. Here's part of the interview. Who converted you? Teacher Clough or teacher Boggs or the native Christians who have been preaching your village? Who converted you? Neither. Oh, neither, sir. God did it. His spirit has used his truth. Ask asked us to follow his example. But you may fail and go back to heathenism. We cannot if we keep trusting and praying. But you cannot read the Bible and preaching cannot be around you all the time. But we have some of it in our hearts where it won't lose. Will you be discouraged if we do not baptize you and do not receive you into the church now? That's like that ordination question. What are you going to do if we vote no? I mean, that's a killer question, right? Will you be discouraged? And that was a tough one for him. Two of them said, no, not till we die. And the third one, who perhaps is a little more honest, said, You know, uh, if I had to wait a year or two or three months, I, I think I'd be discouraged. But I'm a Christian, not a heathen for life. You can't talk me out of this. And Bainbridge turns to the people who are there and says, Do you usually interview people this? They said, Oh, that was nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so are the answers usually this satisfactory? Oh, yeah, more so. So about two years later, Clough went on a follow-up visit to all the villages. Long tour through the villages. And he said, you know what? How are they doing? Pretty well. I like this quote. They're most living as well as they know. That is, you can't expect 12,000 people to get saved in 10 years and they'll all be mature Christians. But they're loving the Lord. Has anybody fallen away? Yeah, a few. A few. This was real revival, and he saw a 1,000 more people saved while he was traveling through the villages. Well, now's the hard part. Organization mobilization, habituation, establishing right habits. They ordained 24 native preachers that year. Interviewing the preachers, Clough said, their knowledge of Christian doctrine seemed surprising, especially after hearing each one of them and relating his experience Speak of the time only a few years back when he was worshiping idols and was in utter ignorance of the true God and the way of life. And so by the early 1880s, the Telugu revival has produced a church of 20,865 people in 27 churches. They're divided into five mission stations, a missionary family, a station in each, but they've got many native preachers. They start schools. They start a hospital, their own goal. It is no longer a lone star. Uh, The sequel is that these numbers are not seen for the next 20 years, but the ministry thrives. Clough is there until 1905 when he retires from the field. He goes back to America as an old man, well, an older man, and dies in 1910. And the work is thriving there. But, as you probably know, in 1908... The ABMU and the Publication Society and the Home Mission Society merged to form the Northern Baptist Convention. And from day one, the liberals are well represented in the Northern Baptist Convention. And one of the first things they do is begin infiltrating the mission fields and taking them over. Why? Because the five Northern Baptist seminaries have been teaching liberalism now for a number of years. And this tremendous work in the Ongol area, is infiltrated by liberalism. Today, there is a significant Baptist presence there, but it's predominantly social gospel to my knowledge. Is there continuing fruit? There is. And I'll just give you one example, because my little church in Columbus, Wisconsin, somehow got to know Solomon and Sandia Raju, who have a church, in fact, a cluster of churches, and a Bible college, And we pray for them regularly. And Hyderabad is today the largest city in Andhra Pradesh, which is old Telugu land. And I've talked to Brother Solomon about this. And he knows about the American Baptists over there on the coast. But he didn't know about the Lone Star Revival. So it was a real thrill to tell him about it. And uh, he is himself telling it. So what do we learn from this? You know what? When When I give a lesson like this to a group like you, I can say, hey, what are the lessons? And I bet you could come up with 10 of them. So let me give you three, and then I would love to hear your feedback. The three lessons that I see here, number one, faith leads to faithfulness. This lesson is not primarily about the decade of fruit. It's primarily about the 40 years of limited fruit. At a conference like this, where we all, I believe, are conscious that we do not evangelize as faithfully as we should, then the emphasis is going to be on our human responsibility. And I don't want to diminish that in any way. But ultimately, is it possible for people to do everything they can as well as they can and people still not get saved? Yeah, God gives the increase. I have a very dear friend who's been a missionary in the Basque region of Spain for 32 years. Roger Burton. That's who it is. And I don't know a better preacher. And I don't know a harder worker, and I don't know a godlier man. And he doesn't have much of a church. But that's God's business, right? The Days, the Van Husens, the Jewets, the Douglases, they faithfully served so that the Cluffs and McLaren's could read. And so wherever we are in the process, let us be faithful. So I think that's lesson number one. If we're trusting God for the results, we can labor on. If we're trusting ourselves, and we don't see results then we'll give up. Or if we get results, we'll be proud. Lesson two, do ministry God's way. Value all people as being in God's image. James 2, right? Hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom? So if God plants us surrounded by Hispanics, who should we be winning? If God plants us surrounding by farmers, who should we be winning? We're not going to change the gospel, but we better not value some people more than others. And I think these Western missionaries, I'm I'm not accusing the days, they wanted to see everybody saved. But the mentality for Westerners going into India was these people have this weird caste system, but let's make it work. And instead, they'd have said, you know what? The gospel's for everybody. And that that rice worker is just as important as that, that minister. In the government. And lesson three, God's the hero. He is the sovereign and sole author of revival. Because Paul didn't say, Brethren, you should see how I preach. Man, the word is running. He said, Pray that the Lord that the word will run. Pray that the word will be glorified. Pray because all men have not faith. But God's faithful, and God will always be faithful. He was just as faithful in 1848 when I wanted to shut the doors as he was in 1878, when nobody wanted to shut the doors. He was the same guy. And that, I hope, is the uh, encouraging lesson from the Lone Star revival of the 19th century. Do you have any questions on this story, or do you have other lessons
2: that are suggested to you? Brother Dixon. North of Longo and east of Hyderabad is my psychopath. I preach there. G.S. Nair, when we gave an honorary doctorate to him here in Africa, years ago, was there preaching in that area. There was a man named Sahu, a Hindu. He was there with a the drum, beating it loudly, so they could not hear G.S. Nair preach Jessica preached for three days. Sahu so got saved. I've met Sahu. Sahu so now runs the fourth Bible college they've planted. It's right here in Bicycle Company. It's exactly the same issue going on today with the Hindus. And people are being gloriously saved. And it was a joy to preach from the book of Mark. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? And to see the response still going on this day is absolutely amazing. Yeah. The reports back from Solomon,
1: is Hindus have become such more, so much more violently opposed to Christianity in the last 20 or 30 years than they had ever been in the history of their culture. And in terms of brother Raju, it's like, this is a good sign. You Know as, as long as Christians were just a drop in the bucket, and and uh, who cares? But there's they're, they're being
2: threatened at this point, and to the south of there in Chennai, Kerala, and then uh, Tamil Nadu. Wow, gospel is just really running there in the south. It's amazing, and of course. There's a long history of wonderful mission down there you know, with the Schwartz and the Danes way, way back. It's yeah. praise God. Difficult as it was to reach the Hindus, we have little excuse to complain how difficult it is in our country to do it and see how faithful they were.
1: Yeah, the truth of the matter is it's impossible to reach anyone. And therefore,
2: we can't use cultural excuses for not sharing the gospel with people. God commands the light to shine in the darkness, and he has shined in our heart. I have a history question. What was happening in America? When was the Civil War in Moody? In relation to these events. The Civil War was 1860 to 1865,
1: so their third discussion to shut down the mission actually happened in 62, which is right in the middle of the Civil War. That's when the Jewetts come home sick. 65, the year that the Jewetts and the Cluffs go back, was, of course, the year the Civil War ended. So there was a great deal of disruption in the North at the time, but they kept their focus on missions uh, to the best of their ability. Then Moody came along later. Who? Wael well, Moody. Uh, Moody is active as a, he starts his Sunday school in the mid-50s. He is uh, first, he first starts working among adults in the northern camps in the early 60s. And then his Sunday school explodes in the mid-60s. And uh, he becomes an evangelist, but sort of Midwestern in the late 60s. When Chicago burns down in 71, that's kind of the impetus that knocks him into broader he goes to England the following year and then the rest is history for the next 27 years he's he's uh he has sank here launched the modern mass evangelism movement
2: but he had no connection with what was happening not that I'm
1: aware of I don't know how well this story was known in America you know I mean it's it, it, it comes it, the story of this revival no doubt came back to, to America
2: but not with the rapidity that we would expect it today I remember correctly, 1857, mile land here. That's the Puritan uh, revival. That's eighteen fifty-seven. Yes, and I know that had a huge impact on that very same area. So it'd be interesting to see if there's a connection between that and missions and development. Yeah, I, I have I have not traced those connections, but yeah, God is doing things
1: in America as well. And I believe that revival was to prepare America for civil war. Yeah. Yes, sir, any, Brother Sam. Yeah.
2: Any interaction with uh, Thomas Chalmers and St. Andrew's Seven? Was there any interaction with that group? Um, with, with, with our Do you know where in India they were. Uh, There's over 500 uh, students from St. Andrew's College who went down to India. Alexander Duff, they permeated. Yeah, I'm sorry, I don't know. I, I don't know that connection. Were these missionaries in back to the states, when their health was broken, you know of any kind of ministry that they continued in the states? I, I trust they did,
1: but. The mission stories are focused on what's happening over there. and I mean, in some cases, we don't even know first names of these people. Very little biographical data is given. Uh, the costs we know a good deal more about. Um, but almost all the other families are, are just slivers of information. Yeah, but I, I would, you know, most of these diseases, if they don't kill you, uh, you can recover in America from, you know, if malaria doesn't kill you, you can get over it when you're in a healthy climate and, and uh, so I would hope most, most of these go as young men. So after 5, 10, 20 years, they're still relatively young and they can still have ministry here in the States.
2: But uh, returning to India just became impossible for them. It's been a tremendously encouraging presentation. Thank yeah. you. It's an encouraging story. When I read it the first time, I was I was blown away that I'd never heard of it. Any Anyone would like the last word?
1: Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for the promise that we are, as co-laborers, plant. Sometimes we water. Well, Lord, sometimes we plant, we often water. And you, in your sovereignty and in your goodness and in your kindness, are able to give increase that's beyond our imagining. And, Lord, we don't know what you're going to do in our spheres of influence, but we know you can do what you did in mm-hmm. home goal. 150 years ago. And thank you, Lord, that during those days when we seem to be working very hard and seeing very little fruit, and sometimes uh, men who do not have faith and are unreasonable seem to be springing up all around us. Thank you that we are promised that you are faithful and that you are able to make your word run. And in fact, it always runs in a sense and that it does not return void. And I pray that you'd help us to be energized by reports of your faithfulness like this one, to trust you more and to be faithful. And I pray all this to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Lord bless you. you. you.
0: This has been the Proclaim and Defend podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and give us a good review. If you want to learn more about the FBFI, check out our website at fbfi.org or our blog, Proclaim and Defend, at proclaimanddefend.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on the Proclaim and Defend podcast.